Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. The fat cat sat on a mat eating a rat. This is the most profound statement. And if you're taking notes, I'll just say it again so that you can write it down. The fat cat sat on the mat eating a rat. I hope you wrote that down. It's such a profound statement. As I say these words, images are conjured up in your mind. And this is how we're able to communicate. At least for now. Time is coming when this will be deemed hate speech. And I won't be able to say such things. But for now, let's unpack this. In a world that we call postmodern. I think we've talked about postmodernism before. I just want to review it again. Uh, There's the pre-modern world, which was a world of superstition and believing in various gods. And reality was defined by the gods. Then there was the modern world, where all of that was thrown away. And reality was defined through logic and science. And now we're in the postmodern world where there is no reality. Reality is self-defined. But all three worlds are anti-God, just different approaches to rejecting God. Let's not assume that one world was better or more righteous than another, although I must say it was better for Christians in both the pre-modern and the modern world. This postmodern world is very, very dangerous for Christians, and I think if we understand the root of postmodernism, we will not be seduced by the fruit of postmodernism. We will recognize its fruit everywhere. It's a very powerful force at work. What I want to do for the sermon is ensure that we understand the root of postmodernism. I think it's a term that's thrown around a lot now, But if we were to actually explain what is it and where did it come from, many of us would struggle. And then I want to tie that into the word of exhortation to see how should we live once we understand what's happening around us. So let's first unpack what is postmodernism. It's a philosophy. And if you look in the dictionary under the word philosophy, it says that philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. So it's how, it's how we come to understand what is true, what is reality. This is philosophy. The second definition says, a theory or attitude that acts as a guiding principle for behavior. So even they are clear that philosophy matters. Philosophy drives behavior. So the the world around us is behaving the way it does because of its philosophy. Rejecting the Judeo-Christian foundation and adopting this postmodern philosophy is changing the world around us. So philosophy defines reality and it drives behavior. Let's begin in Colossians 2. As we consider this philosophy that is dramatically changing our world. 
In Colossians 2 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, As you have therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. So there's something to do, as Pastor Murray was explaining in the, the wonderful exhortation. We don't just receive these words and feel good about them and then go our way and forget what we were seeing. As we have received Christ the Lord, so walk you in him. This is our philosophy. He says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. So, so someone has had to teach us Christ. And then we must be rooted and then built up in him and established in the faith as we have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So again, to the word of exhortation, it's not something we take casually. It's not something we take lightly. When we receive this, we abound in it with thanksgiving. And then he says, beware. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. So there's a caution here. Philosophy is powerful, and men are clever, and we need to be on guard that we are not spoiled. We're not taken in. It's everywhere. You cannot uh, watch a show, listen to music, read a book. It's everywhere, and we have to be able to spot it and not be seduced, not be drawn away by it. Beware, and you know, don't think we're immune. Christians argue for causes that if they understood postmodernism, they would realize they've been seduced. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. So this is, this is how Satan will attack us, through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men. So we're going to pursue men instead of Christ. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So postmodernism is a philosophy but it's a philosophy that's rooted in something called deconstruction. So postmodernism is rooted in deconstruction. And, and that is the, the objective is to advance Marxism. So we have to understand where the world is heading, or the Western world, is a Marxist future. And the way it gets there is through deconstruction, which is what postmodernism is all about. The father of deconstruction is a French Jew named Jacques Derrida. And we've spoken about him before. One of the two authors or, or architects of postmodernism. But deconstruction, was Jacques Derrida was the father. I've mentioned Michel Foucault as well as the other architect of, of postmodernism. Both these men were as immoral as they were intelligent. Their, their intelligence, which was off the charts, was matched by their immorality, which was off the charts. So what does that tell you about them? Who does that sound like? Who's somebody who is as evil as he is intelligent? These are his children. And somehow, the whole Western world has rejected Christ and embraced Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault that they have chosen these men over Christ. And they've chosen to run society based on the philosophies of these men rather than Christ. Jacques Derrida said that deconstruction 
is a radical critique against all Western intellectual thought. So he focused specifically on the West. He had no comment on the East. But the West must be deconstructed. And deconstruction is a radical critique against all Western intellectual tradition. The key to understanding deconstruction is that Jacques Derrida was attacking language and logic. So deconstruction is an attack on language and logic. He says, and just bear, bear with me here, and just uh, I'm going to unpack this step by step. If it's not clear, just stop me and say it's not clear. But we want to just understand what are these people doing to us and to our children. Number one, language is made up of symbols which are arbitrary. So cat, letter C-A-T, is a symbol. It is not a cat. It's a symbol that points to a cat. So when I say the word cat, the word is not the cat. It's a symbol for a cat. This is how language works. Why C-A-T? Your guess is as good as mine. It could have been BGF. And we all agree that BGF means the animal. But somehow we've all agreed that these arbitrary symbols, C-A-T, point to the animal that we call a cat. He further goes on to say that simply changing one element of the symbol from a C to an R, it suddenly points to something else. So in order to understand cat, you have to understand how it's differentiated from rat. This is how language works. So he's saying that meaning comes from differences. It's the differences from one symbol to another that gives meaning. Therefore, to understand any one word you must understand all the words associated with it and all the words that are different from it. For example, if I say the word tree, for you to understand tree, you also have to understand leaf and branch, green, wood, slender. All of these words must be included in your understanding of the word tree. So far, so good? And then you have to understand all the opposite of tree as well. He also says, to understand any one word, you must understand all the historical uses of the word as well. So, if, for example, I say the word gay. It has a certain meaning today. But to really understand that meaning, you have to understand the evolution of the word gay and how it was used in the past and how people might understand it in the past to fully understand what it means today. So it's a big task to understand language. He says every word is defined by other words, and all these other words must also be fully understood. So if you look up in the dictionary to find the meaning of a word, you're going to be pointing to other words, and you need to stop and look up all of those other words, which will point to other words. So he says, therefore, every symbol or every word has an infinite potential of meaning and that meaning is never fully finalized. Therefore, because of all of this insight, 
Therefore, there is no such thing as the meaning of a word. You, you cannot possibly say that this word means this when you take into account how you must fully comprehend to arrive at the meaning of a word. So his great conclusion was that Western intellectual thought is flawed because it is, he coined this, I don't know if he coined the term, but I had to look it up, uh, logocentric. So in the West, we are logocentric. And this is the flaw of our thinking. Logocentric means, it's an adjective, it means regarding words and language as a fundamental expression of an external reality. So we are logocentric if we believe that reality can be described with words. This is what it means to be logocentric. And this is the flaw of Western intellectual thought. That we would think that we can communicate truth to each other with words. And, and with words and logic. To the point that Murray asked in the exhortation, what is truth? If somebody asks you what is truth, how do you describe it? How do you, how do you convey truth? Derrida says, if you use words, this is flawed. This is fantasy, because words have no meaning. This is the root of postmodernism. When we say postmodernism, we have to, the root of it is deconstruction. He says, the point of deconstruction is to question and undermine all differences. Differences are binary, so binary means on, off, Hot, cold, it's the opposites. Differences are binary. And in all binaries, there is privilege. Stay with me. This is, uh, this is important. This is the root of what we're being, the onslaught of Satan's attack today. Differences are binary. And in all binaries, there is privilege. Reality versus illusion. Reality is privileged. It's better than illusion. Good versus evil. Good is privileged. It's better than evil. True versus false. True is privileged. It's better than false. But he says, each side of a binary implies the other. You can't have hot without cold. So therefore, you can't have good without evil. Therefore, evil is just as good as good. You can't have good without evil. Evil depends, good depends on evil. Therefore, it is equal to good. This is his logic. This is the logic that the whole Western world has embraced. We've rejected the Judeo-Christian philosophy, and we've replaced it with Jacques Derrida. He says, the truth is, you can't have one aspect of a binary without the other. Therefore, both are equal, and one should not be privileged over the other. All binaries are therefore false. Deconstruction seeks to destroy all privilege and hierarchy. Deconstruction seeks to de-anchor you so that you have no ground to stand upon. I thank you for the hymn.
Deacon Jan, standing on the promises. Deconstruction is about deconstructing the promises so you have nothing to stand on. This, this is the foundation, the new foundation of society. He says the result is that all ideas must be held lightly. Don't hold on to any particular concept. You can have concepts, but hold them lightly because they really have no meaning. The idea that you would think you have truth and you can hold on to that truth, this is nonsensical. To us, it sounds crazy, and yet it's embraced. There must be some merit to this type of thinking, to this philosophy, for the whole Western world to embrace it. And I think we can understand why it's appealing. The idea that you should not privilege one half of a binary over the other. Because all of us can be categorized in a binary where we are marginalized. All of us can be categorized in a binary where we are undermined. Black versus white. Old versus young. Rich versus poor. Able-bodied versus disabled. Male versus female. Attractive versus unattractive. We could go on and on and on, and every one of us would fall into a marginalized binary. To be released from that binary by saying the binary is flawed, the hierarchy of the binary is flawed, is going to be appealing by those who suffer from being undermined by the binary. Does that make sense? So this is the attractiveness of Derrida. But this deconstruction... Now we understand why we can't have rational debate. We can no longer sit down like adults and explore something intelligently. We can now only protest. We can, we can be outraged, but we can't talk. What's the point of talking? Words have no meaning. It explains why intelligent people are confronted with something like transgenderism, and we all submit. We all agree. There's no such thing as gender. Gender is a binary. It's false. And, and the philosophy ends up in practice. So if binaries are false, then gender is false. It explains why we're being force-fed multiculturalism. That Canada doesn't have a culture. And that no culture, no one culture is better than any other. The fact that the Judeo-Christian culture has such high moral standards and other cultures do not, that doesn't make it better. Who are you to say your culture is better? It's a binary that's false. It also explains why Minority groups can be empowered, but the host patriarch cannot. It explains why me saying, the fat cat sat on a mat eating a rat. Oh, that could be hate speech. 
But at the same time, we can open the Quran, which is full of hate speech, and that will never be categorized as hate speech because it's part of the binary that is marginalized. And we must empower the marginalized part of the binary. It explains why black people cannot be racist. But if you're white, you're a racist. Because I'm part of the marginalized part of the binary. So I can't be racist. It's all about power and deconstructing power. But what does God say? Jan had a sing singing on promises. But he also quoted as his opening scripture, Psalm 119. Let's go there. Psalm 119. And maybe just before I read the psalm, let me just check in. Uh, postmodernism being rooted in deconstruction, deconstruction being an attack on language, and specifically the concept of binaries, and any logic that would be advanced to say that one part of a binary is better than another, this is the root of postmodernism. Is, this, is it clear? That's it. Now, he says it in very profound intellectual language that is, that is uh, inscrutable. It's a kind of a emperor's clothes where the emperor comes out naked and everybody's like how beautiful he is. The clothing is wonderful, but the kid's like, he's naked. Jacques Derrida is naked. But his intellect is so powerful and how he writes is so inaccessible that it's a privilege if somebody can actually read this French writer and understand him. So suddenly you've entered into the group of the intellectual elite if you can understand this guy. And he was uh, touring all of our universities. I shouldn't say our, uh, West, uh, in the United States and around the Western world. And he was a guest of honor. And like, just to understand him was like, I must be smart because I understand him. And, and he's saying that you mustn't use words to advance any concept and hold on to any concept. But he's using words to advance a concept. And somehow this is okay. But fundamentally, it's a very simple concept that he's come forward with, with which, which is designed to destroy the West. The East, great that they're confident that they come to invade us on chariots of faith. And they're convicted in their truth. But you mustn't be convicted in yours. So deconstruction is aimed specifically at the West. The Christian West. Psalm 119, verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers. We are building on the teachers that came before us. For your testimonies are my meditation. Testimonies are words. I understand more than the ancients... Because I keep your precepts. Precepts are words. What Pastor Murray was saying, we don't just hear the words and do nothing with them. They're instructions, how we ought to live. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. So I have the doctrine of Derrida, and I can read this doctrine and realize that I can be as filthy, as immoral, as evil as I want, or I can read the words of Christ and realize I've got a lot of cleaning up to do. And there's a high moral standard here. If I want to do what I want to do, Derrida becomes very appealing. But if I want truth, I'm going to refrain my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. Words matter. 
I have not departed from your judgments, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words unto my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Words matter. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate Jacques Derrida's teachings. They're false. How is it that people can't see through this nonsense and what it's doing to our society? Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Yes, the West is logocentric. Never heard of such a word, but now that I've looked it up, that's exactly what we are. We are logocentric. We are centered around the logos. And this is why in the West, you have psychology, biology, anthropology, archaeology, all these ologies. Because the West is trying to understand what is the fundamental logic of this particular discipline. Ultimately, what is the Logos? It all points back to the Logos. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, Paul writes, Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. So some of the prophecy might be unpleasant, but it's truth. Don't despise it. Prove all things. God is not a God that says, I said it, you do it, no questions. Just do as you're told. He invites us to reason. He invites us to logic. There is such a thing as truth. And we arrive at it through logic. There's a fundamental way that we can prove, is this true or is that true? What is true, what is false? Prove all things. There's going to be a binary. That which is good and that which is evil. And they're not equal. And Derrida is wrong. You don't need evil to have good. Good existed long before evil was even thought of. Good exists without evil. Evil came into being. So good is privileged over evil. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. There's a difference. And hold it, don't, he says, hold it lightly. Don't, don't hold any concepts tightly. Any, have concepts, have beliefs, but hold them loosely. God says, prove and then hold fast. Abstain from all appearance of evil. There's a difference between good and evil. Hold that which is good. Stay, run away from that which is evil. The devil wants to conflate the two. It doesn't matter. Good is evil. Evil is good. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, come now and let us reason together. He appeals to his people. This is the creator, the mind of God, appealing to mankind, saying, let's reason. Think this through. Let's work it out and come to conclusions. So he invites us to logic. Derrida and his children have embraced the idea that logic doesn't matter. God wants us to to, to reason. This shouldn't surprise us, because from the beginning, Satan's tactic has been to disconnect us from the Word of God. He sort of disconnects us from the Word of God, and then destroy the binary through self-appeal, self-interest, appeal to self-interest. 
So there is a binary in reality. But Satan wants to destroy that binary. That we don't look at things as opposite, as different, as distinct. That it's all the same. Let's look at this in Genesis 3. So you destroy the perception of a binary through self-interest. In Genesis 3 and verse 1, Moses writes, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. So we shouldn't be surprised if his children are subtle. It was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yeah, has God said? It's an attack on words. God spoke words. And Satan says, words? Do words matter? God spoke words that established a binary. There was a binary. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there were all the other trees. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not to be seen as the same. It was different. Satan came to destroy that and say, no, it's all the same. In Genesis 2 and verse 16, it says, the Lord God commanded the man. Commands are words. The Lord God gave words to the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. There's a binary. One is privileged over the other. All of the other trees are privileged over the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Satan took the binary away, took the words of God away to bring death. And that is what Jacques Derrida is doing post-mortem to the West. Back to Genesis 3. And verse 11, God says, Who told you, words, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you, words, that you should not eat? In verse 17, And unto Adam he said, Because you have listened unto the voice, words, of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, action, so action follows words, of which I commanded you, words, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. It's an attack on words. It's an attack not just on any words, but on words that set up a binary, where one part of the binary is privileged over the other. This, this is deconstruction right at the beginning. So Jacques Derrida didn't bring anything new. He just gave birth to his father's ideas, the devil. When the devil tried this with Christ, what happened? Let's go to Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, we're very familiar with this, but let's just look at it from this concept of deconstruction. Matthew 4 and verse 4. But Christ answered and said, It is written. Words. There are words. This is how Christ 
defeated the devil. There are words. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's no wonder that deconstruction attacks words. Because words come out of the mouth of God that lead to life. And the agenda of the devil is to destroy, to, to, to lead to death. Instead of living by the words of our Lord, wholesale, we have decided to live by the words of Jacques Derrida. Somehow Jacques Derrida's words are more appealing than the words of Jesus Christ, than the words of God the Father. <laughs> Look at Malachi 3. This isn't new. This isn't new. At the end of the Old Testament, Israel has this long journey with God, the God of Israel, and it doesn't go well. Why not? Malachi 3, verse 13, God says, Your words, the words of men, have been stout against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? Exactly what Jacques, I'm, not, I'm not saying. I'm just saying don't privilege one over the other. I'm not speaking against you particularly. This is against all binaries. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. This is deconstruction. It's vain to serve God. It doesn't matter. And what profit is it that we've kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. It, it, it really doesn't matter. And now we call the proud happy. There should be a, a binary here where the humble is privileged over the proud. But no, we're going to destroy that and say the proud is happy. Yes, those that work wickedness are set up. It's exactly what we're seeing today. The wicked are set up. Yes, those that tempt God are even delivered. However, then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another words. So in the midst of this deconstruction, the elimination of the, the holy from the profane, there were some that recognized, no, there is a binary. There is a difference. And what did they do? We spoke words to one another, exhort one another, encourage one another. They spoke often one to another. And the Lord listened and heard it. And a book, words, of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine. There's going to be a difference. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them. So there is a difference. There is a binary. And you're either part of this group and spared, or you're not, and destroyed. It's no wonder Derrida would attack language. Because it's through language, it's through words, that we are in this book of remembrance, and we are spared. I will spare them, as a man spares his own son that serves him. Then you shall return and discern. There's a binary. You're going to discern between the righteous and the wicked. They're not the same. There is a difference. 
and, and one is better than the other. It, the, the righteous are privileged over the wicked. But it's like it's a time of confusion, and only this small group can see it and act accordingly. Everyone else thinks there's no difference. But there will come a time when everybody will see, in fact, there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. John 18. There is a difference. And God's people, we know God's voice. And it's a different voice than the devil's. And we follow Christ. Here in John 18, verse 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say that I am. To this end, or to this purpose or objective, was I born. And for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness, words, so Christ came into, the, the purpose of Christ coming into the earth was to speak words. That I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. So Derrida doesn't make any sense to us. It's complete rubbish. Christ makes sense. Why? We are blessed to be his children. To, to be his sheep, to hear his voice, to hear the sound of truth. Pilate said unto him, what is truth? And that's the question. Is there truth? Derrida would say there is truth. He's not arguing that there's no truth. He's just saying you can't arrive at truth through words. It's folly to think that truth can be described with words. He would certainly, I think, I don't think he would argue if you said, I think truth is a feeling. That you, you can feel truth. I, I think he would be willing to accept that. But he will not accept that you can actually articulate truth with words. Christ said, I came into the earth to speak words. Let's go to, back to John 17. One chapter back. Our brother Mark was reading. Let's just read that again. In the light of the onslaught of deconstruction all around us. John 17 and verse 6. I have manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. There's a difference between the men that God gave him and the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. They, they took the word seriously. They didn't allow the Jacques Derrida of the day to say words don't matter. It's all the same. They kept his word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given me are, are of you. For I have given unto them... The words which you gave me. So the Father gave precious words to Christ. And then Christ gave these precious words to those who were called out of the world and given to him. His gift to them were words. 
for I have given unto them the words which you gave me. And they have received them and have no, as a result, have known surely that I came out from you. And they have believed that you did send me. They didn't kind of hold on to it lightly. They understood Christ came from the Father. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. So Christ set up a binary. His people and the world. And he privileged his people over the world. He prayed for his people, but not for the world. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in that part of the binary which is privileged over the rest. I'm glorified in my people, not in the world. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. So there's a difference between the world and and the people of God. And the people of God are in the world, and as a result, Christ is coming to the Father. There's There's a situation here that requires the Father's attention. We are not of the world, but we're in the world, and Christ is coming to the Father to say, you need to look at this. Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So that is the prayer. That we who are differentiated from the world would be kept by the Father, through his own name, so that we may be one. There's a difference. We are to be one with each other, not one with the world. There's a difference. And there's a privilege of being in this part of the binary. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me I have kept, and none of them are lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there will be evil, because the scripture must be fulfilled. And we are going to face today terrible evil, men who have given themselves over to the devil. And we just have to look at it and say, the word, the words have to be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, And these things I speak, words, these things I speak in the world, that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. So there's something about these words that Christ is speaking, that despite the evil in the world, we will have joy fulfilled. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Do words matter? Can can we ever understand the meaning of words? This whole exercise of Christ coming to earth and being slaughtered is completely fruitless if we cannot understand words. On the other hand, if we can understand words, this is the power of eternal life. 
And this is what Satan is seeking to take away from us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And this hatred is going to be enabled and amplified through deconstruction. As long as we have very clear morality, as long as we have very clear principles, and good is privileged over evil, it's going to be very difficult for people to do evil. But if we can erase that binary, and, well, this is your truth, I have to, I have to live my truth, I have to be honest to myself and, and have the courage to be, and face my truth, and I hope you'll face your truth. Well, now that truth is relative and self-defined, Anyone can be as evil as they choose to be. And who are you to say? And when people come here from another culture and rape and kill and destroy and maim, who are you to be so privileged to think that you can evaluate them based on your standards? All cultures are the same. I pray not that you should take them out of the world. Well, this is fascinating. Because when he says how evil the world is, that verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world hates them. If he didn't give us his word, the world would be okay with us. We'd be all right. But God gave him words, and he gave these words to us. And because we've received these words, the world hates us. This is the time when I'm expecting to be able to say, beam me up. Get me out of here. And Christ doesn't do that. He says, I've given them your word, and now the hostility of the world is against them. And he says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world. What? But that you should keep them from the evil. And that is to say, not that evil will never touch us, but that it will never penetrate us. Keep us from the Jacques Derrida's. Keep us from the evil philosophies. We can face evil men, and we will have to. All who desire to live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. So we will face evil men, but they'll never get in here. There's nothing they can do to get in here, because we can spot their evil philosophy, and we reject it. And we hold tight, we hold fast unto that which is good, which we have proven. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil, which is just spreading everywhere. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. And are you ready? Can truth be known? Can truth be described? Can we use language to articulate truth? Derrida says no. He says no way. All caps, exclamation mark. What does Christ say? Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. It's no wonder Satan would attack words. It's no wonder Satan would attack logic. Because with words and logic, we can come to truth. Let's go back to John 8, a couple of chapters earlier, a few chapters earlier. John 8. So we believe in God's word. As a result, we're hated. 
But as a result, we come to truth. John 8 and verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. If. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. If you continue in my word. You better hold on to it. Once you've proven it. Once you've received it. Don't let these clever people trick you. Don't let these clever people lead you to think, oh, maybe I don't need to hold on to this so tightly. I could just kind of hold on to it loosely. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So it's kind of paradoxical. Derrida is offering freedom from false binaries. That now you can do what you want because nothing's really true. And then you end up a slave. You end up a slave to every desire, every whim, every perversity. And sin grows. Sin doesn't stay, oh, I commit this sin, but I won't go any further. You commit sin, and then you get used to it. It's not exciting anymore. So Satan pulls us further and deeper and further down. And we're, we're now deep into slavery, which started off sounding like freedom. Christ makes it very clear. Do this, don't do that. We obey him, and we're free. We're free from fear. We're free from doubt. We're free from falsehood. And we're filled with the joy of the future. I don't mean the immediate future. The immediate future, it's pretty dark. And then the future right after that is even darker. And the future right after that is really deep darkness. I'm talking about the real future, which is bright, bright, bright and glorious. You shall know the truth through words. It's not just sort of you just sit around. Um... Um, oh, have the truth now. It has to be taught. We have to reason with each other. We have to dig, hunger and thirst for it. And then we come to know it, and we're free. And, and God does it this way so that the wicked cannot access it. The wicked will not put in the effort to come to truth. But we will. And so we start with knowledge. And that grows into understanding, and we commit to the understanding, and we gain wisdom, all through words. They answered him, we are Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How do you say you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. Oh, Derrida didn't mention that. He just said, don't hold on to anything tightly. Do whatever you want. He was certainly a pervert. Michel Foucault was certainly, I mean, the lives these guys led. I won't even speak of it. They were slaves to sin. And he says to these Jews, whoever commits sin is the servant of sin, the slave of sin. And the servant 
abides not in the house forever. Oh, there's a time limit here. You can have your way, but there's a time limit. You won't be here forever. But the Son abides ever. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word. Why do they seek to kill him? Because my word has no place in you. Why will they seek to kill us? Because his word has no place in them. That when we stick to this word, when we preach this word, it will absolutely contradict the very root of their philosophies. And they will hate us for it. Because if you attack the root of the philosophy, all the behavior that is built upon that philosophy comes into question. If the philosophy is evil, the behavior is evil. And this word shines a light and says the philosophy is evil. It says that philosophy comes straight out of the mouth of the devil. And you're his children. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. None at all. My word. No place in you. I speak words that which I have seen with my father. So there are things in heaven that Christ saw and he brought those things to earth through words. So through words, we have access to the reality in heaven. This is the power of words. And this is what Satan wants to take away from us. He says here, I speak that which I have seen with my father. And you do that which you have seen with your father. So we, we can, okay, I love your, your philosophy sounds really intelligent. Sounds great. Do you mind if I follow you around for 24 hours and see what you do? Can I see the fruit of your philosophy? Oh, you're filthy. Oh, you want me to be like you? No thanks. No thanks. You do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Or I should say, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto him, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has given you words. A man that has told the truth, which I have heard of God. So God spoke words. Christ took those words and brought them to earth. And they rejected him because of the words from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. So this is the test. If we want to know, like, who is really a child of God? We put the words of Christ in front of them. And if they are of God, they will love the words of God. 
they will love Christ. If they hate Christ's words, they're of the devil. I didn't say, I'm not making this up. I'm just reading the text. If they do not love the true Christ, they're of the devil. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came forth from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my words? Why can't you understand my words? Even because you cannot hear my word. This, this, this is what Derrida is attacking. And I shouldn't say Derrida because he's in his grave. This is what all the Western civilizations are attacking. They are all now built upon the concept of deconstruction. Because academia drives society. The thought leaders in our highest institutions of learning drive society. And they've all embraced Derrida. And so, they cannot receive, they cannot hear the words of Christ. And soon the words of Christ will be illegal. Soon the words of Christ will be hate speech. That's where we're going. You are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. Christ always takes this argument about words down to action. So this isn't just conceptual. The concepts drive behavior. And we know you have false concepts because you have false behavior. You're of your father, the devil. And ultimately, with all your reasoning and logic, it comes down to your behavior. We know you're of the father, the devil. You're your father, the devil. Because the lust of your father, you will do. And you're looking for excuses. You're looking for rationale to excuse and make right the works of the devil. So you're doing everything that the devil, all of the perversion of the devil, that's what you do, and you dress it up with flowery language. Let's skip the flowery language, and let's get straight to your behavior. He was a murderer from the beginning. So if you murder, I don't care what language you dress it up with, you're a murderer. And your father was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. And so this is why you can't stand in the truth, because you want to do what he did. He could not abide in the truth. Why? Because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So this counters Derrida's claim that binaries are equal because you can't have one without the other well satan there was existence before satan and christ is telling us that there's no place for the truth in him and that when he lies he's speaking of his own falsehood did not exist before satan only truth so truth does not require falsehood falsehood is something that emerged and came into being from the devil. So when the devil lies, it's something that comes from himself. There's no other source. He's the source. And life pre-existed the devil. So when he speaks, he speaks of his own. 
when he lies. For he is a liar and he's the source of falsehood. So anyone, imagine, <laughs> imagine for a moment that, there, that I'm going to say there's religious text that comes from the creator, the architect of the universe, where everything just runs perfectly forever. That the, 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 the universe as a clock, as Deacon Jan spoke about, runs perfectly. That the architect of all of that has given us scripture that tells us it's okay to lie. Does this make any sense? Can God be the source of falsehood? It's impossible for God to lie. And he says all liars will be in the lake of fire when he puts an end to falsehood. So truth pre-existed falsehood and truth will exist without falsehood into the future. Because all liars will be thrown into the lake of fire. Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. And we will be in a future with truth and good. And there won't be an opposite. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. For he is a liar. That's what he is. And he's the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. We know that it's impossible for God to lie. That's why we can stand on the promises. When God makes... The reason Abraham could have confidence is he understood it's impossible for God to lie. So if God has promised this, I'm standing on the promises. And that's the kind of confidence we have to have if we, if we believe that God is a God of truth. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. And verse 16. For men verily swear words by the greater and an oath words for confirmation is to them an end of all strife so the judeo-christian principle is that when you speak something when you give your word when you give a promise you stick to it even if it kills you you do not go back on your word that's why business in the past could be done on a handshake somebody gave their word and you can't build if somebody gives you your word and then they betray you. And you, can't, you can never trust anybody. You can't build. Husband and wife can't trust each other. Business people can't trust each other. Children can't trust their parents. The words matter. And there must be truth in words. So when somebody swears an oath, that, that's the end of all strife, okay? Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his plans, confirmed it by an oath. So he gave the promise, and then he gave an oath on top of the promise, that by two immutable things, the promise and the oath, by two immutable things, he can never lie, and he'll never break an oath. By two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, impossible, we might have strong consolation in words. Our consolation is in words. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. 
Derrida says his work is to de-anchor us, to make sure that we can't hold on to anything. And Paul is showing us here, our hope, our anchor, is the word of God. Sure, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. Peter says we have a, a sure word of prophecy, and that's where I want to go to next. That words are not just words. Let's go to Isaiah 41. That, yeah, we can argue concepts. And we can certainly use logic to say one concept certainly is privileged over another. That this makes more sense than that. But it's still at a level of concepts. But God's word is truth. What is the proof of God's word that completely destroys Jacques Derrida? That any argument that Jacques Derrida and his disciples want to bring to us, what is the logos, the logic that we can produce that absolutely destroys anything they have to say? Isaiah 41 and verse 21 to the world. Produce your cause, says the world. Let's hear it. Produce your cause, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let's hear it. What have you got? Oh, you got Derrida. Okay, let's listen. What have you got? Let them bring forth, verse 22, let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let's stop the concept talking. And let's now talk about the future. Let's shift gears and let's do prophecy. And let's see the power of words in prophecy. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, words, that they wrote, what they be, that we may consider them. Show us your prophecy, written of old, and let's see it if it's come to pass. Because that's the difference with the Bible. It tells the future in detail. And God says, watch. And no one can undo it. So you bring forth your arguments and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare us things for to come. Chapter 42, verse 9. Behold... The former things that God declared have come to pass. This is the difference. These are not just words. These are words of God. The God who controls the future. And so he wrote things in the past. And look, they have come to pass. And new things does he declare. So even more things he's telling us are going to happen. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. These are different words. The, the, what, what, what source is this that is so bold that it says, I give you words to tell you what's going to happen in the future before it happens so that you can know I am God. This is the difference. Chapter 43, verse 9. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled who among them can declare this and show us former things? They can't do it. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. 
So yeah, we can reason and play games with words, but let's stop that. And if you have truth, show us your ability with words to tell us what's going to happen in the future. Because our God does that. And that's how we know these words are true. As I wind down, let's go to the book of Revelation to see and underline just how important words are. And let me, let me say actually symbols. That the symbol is not the thing. The symbol points to a thing. And that's how we communicate as humans. But it's also how God communicates to us through symbols. Revelation 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. This is is important. This is coming from God, given to Christ. Why? To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. These are not just words. This is prophecy. This is the God who says, I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, that which is not yet done, saying, my plans will stand. This is the God we serve. These are not just words. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Notice this. And he sent and signified it. He signified it. So words are signifiers. Symbols are signifiers. Signifiers point to something. So there's the signifier and the signified. Cat is a signifier. The actual cat is the signified. So God sends his revelation in signifiers. He doesn't give us the thing. He gives us symbols that point to the thing. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word. Words matter. Who bear record of the word of God and the testimony, more words, of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Satan wants to come along in the form of Jacques Derrida and say, has God said, do you believe in words? You think that this tree is any different from any other tree? It's all the same. Has God said? Yes, he has. And blessed is he that reads what God said, and they that hear the words of what God said in this prophecy, and hang on to those things, these words, which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So let's go over it again. The fat cat sat on the mat eating a rat. Words matter. And this profound statement becomes even more profound if I add just one word. 
What word is that? The word will. The fat cat will sit on the mat eating a rat. Let's see it. Now we've gone from pure words to prophecy. Revelation 13. It will sit on the mat and it will eat the rat. Revelation 13, these are signifiers, and they point to something. Verse 1, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. These are signifiers. And upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a cat. It was a cat. It was like a leopard with the mouth of a lion. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. So try to picture this cat-like creature with bear's feet, sitting on a mat, coming out of the sea, and coming onto the earth, which is the mat, So it comes and it sits on the mat, and it's fat because of the amount of eating that it's doing. It's a beast that's unstoppable, and it's just devouring everything in its path. So that's why it's so fat. And the dragon gave this cat its power and its seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. So we understand that this is a previous empire that died, but then it's come back to life. And its deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And here come the rats. Here come the leaders of Western civilization that are betraying us and colluding with the beast. Colluding with the fat cat. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power to the fat cat. And they worshipped the fat cat, saying... Who is like this fat cat? And who can make war with it? So they just loved this fat cat. And there was given unto it a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto it to continue forty and two months. And it opened its mouth in blasphemy against God. To blaspheme his name. So trying to destroy the the binary that God is good and the devil is evil. And now that's a privileged position. So it wants to take God from this privileged position and blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven, not realizing there's a distinction and there's privilege to be with God. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So this is the evil. And it's not that we never face evil. It's that this evil never penetrates us. We hold on to the truth. And power, this is it now, He's, this fat cat is on the mat, and the Western leaders have colluded with it and given it power and worshipped it and told everybody to worship it and cooperated with it. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. The very people that supported it will be devoured by it. So the fat cat will sit on the mat 
and eat the rat. And all that dwell upon the earth will worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. There's a difference. There are those that understand there's a difference, and we remain faithful no matter what. And our names, words, are, are written in the book of life. Their names, words, are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, brethren, there is a difference. There's a difference between God and Satan. One is privileged over the other. There's a difference between holiness and profanity. One is privileged over the other. There's a difference between Babylon and Jerusalem. And God says, come out of her. One is privileged over the other. So as Pastor Murray exhorted us, and I actually wish I had this first, and then we had the word of exhortation, that we have work to do. We have to understand this world around us. We cannot be ignorant of the devices of the devil. We need to help our children and grandchildren and friends and neighbors to see what is happening in this relentless agenda. And we need to be doers of the word. Let's conclude in Ephesians 6. We will not be fooled by intellects, by false philosophers, by deconstruction, which is destruction, which is the fruit of the devil. We are builders. Ephesians 6, let's conclude beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God. This is serious. We are going into battle, and the arrows are coming from every angle. We need to be fully equipped. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This, this is serious. Derrida is quite some intellect. I, I, I don't read French, I, but... From what I hear of the people who analyze him, his thinking is profound. And he's nothing compared to the devil. And we are up against the wiles, his best craft. This is what we're up against. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and against powers. All we have to say with respect to flesh and blood, brethren, is the scripture must be fulfilled. Somebody has to do these evil works. So when flesh and blood arrives, oh well, the scripture must be fulfilled. But flesh and blood is not our enemy. We don't look at any particular people and say they're our enemy. We're involved in something much higher, much deeper. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, of the darkness of this world. So this deconstruction that's spreading through the land, there are rulers who are overseeing this. There are rulers that are overseeing the takedown of the West and the setting up of the East. 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's not just the wickedness on the earth. And believe me, there's wickedness on the earth. We're actually up against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Words. This is how we stand. This is how we resist the wiles of the devil. This is how we resist spiritual powers. Stand, therefore, having your loins wrapped with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. It's not just concepts, again, to the word of exhortation. We're not just in this so that, hey, you know, we sat down and we had a good talk and we were reasoning and we came to this great concept that we call truth. Isn't it wonderful? And then we go and do whatever filth we feel like doing. That's not what this is about. The philosophy must lead to behavior. The doctrine must result in action. If the doctrine is righteous and true, our behavior must be transformed so that it's righteous and true. Having your loins wrapped with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We understand it. We can preach it. We're ready. Above all, taking the shield of faith. He says, don't hold on to any concept too, too strongly. Hold everything loosely. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And what is that? It is the Word of God. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.